0: There's joy in every journey.
1: Hey, everybody. It's the Deceptively Fast Podcast. Please subscribe on iTunes. Give us a five-star rating. Leave a review. That would be awesome. I've gotten so much great feedback from everybody and some constructive advice. I won't even say criticism. Advice. The podcast is going along smashingly. I and fully anticipate it becoming one of the top-rated podcasts soon because of you, the listener. It has been a fun week. NFL Action started. We've had various college football coaches weighing on things that do affect the NFL, including one Pat Fitzgerald of Northwestern, who had some comments that have been taken far too literally. They've been taken far too literally by way too many people. And uh, look, I am all for the First Amendment, but I will say this as much as I am a fan of the First Amendment, if you tweet out an article about something that's obviously a joke and then presented as something that was serious, I believe that you should have your Twitter thumbs lopped off by the Queen.
2: I mean, I mean, it's a pure RPO is the purest form of communism. I mean, I don't understand how offensive linemen can be downfield. Yeah. I know, oh, I know. Well, it used to be when you and I played, when you tripped and fell down, it was an illegal man downfield. Now, if you're just an uncovered lineman and you go two point three yards, it's not a penalty. But if you go three, it is, and nobody can see it till after the ball's thrown. So, again, it's the rules. You can you can you can complain all you want. I mean, if I want to get it fixed, I guess I can beg to get be on the rules committee. But uh, it's, it's the most in vogue change, I think, in football that if you're a purist of football, it's not the game. It's not. I mean, me- people downfield blocking and the ball being thrown should be illegal. But as a defensive head coach with defense in my background, we will absolutely 100% take full advantage within the frameworks of the rules that are given to us. So RPO forever.
1: So that was, of course, the aforementioned Pat Fitzgerald talking about the RPO, grousing about the RPO. Pat Fitzgerald's a pretty bright guy. He went to Northwestern. He's got that kind of intellectual meathead quality to him where he understands that the RPO isn't like communism. Because in fact, if anything, the RPO is more like capitalism without regulation, because that's what colleges are getting away with, with the RPO. They've got men ridiculously far downfield past the three yards, but officials don't bother to call it. So you've got offensive linemen running downfield, even when it is legally run. It's really, really hard as a defense to adjust to, you know, offensive linemen that are run blocking So you don't know whether you're getting a run read or a pass read, and then all of a sudden the pass is thrown with the offensive lineman three yards downfield. It's really, really hard. So it's something that you want to rail against. It's something that you don't like or you don't think is sustainable or is right. It's obviously obviously not like communism in terms of the economic model because, if anything, the RPO as an economic model – would be capitalism. You're, you're capitalizing on market inefficiencies. You are at times, I would say it's capitalism with little regulation because officials aren't all that great at figuring out whether the offensive linemen are actually three yards downfield. Offenses get away with a whole lot of illegal men downfield just because of the speed of the play. But Pat Fitzgerald, other various defensive minded people hate the RPO because it's so hard to defend against. It is the most extreme version of option football. Having said that, a lot of people wonder, well, why isn't it even more prevalent in the NFL despite even the Philadelphia Eagles having success with it and other teams? There are a few there are a few things. And there are a few things about college football in general that are hard to replicate in the NFL for various reasons. I I would say off the top of my head, first, you want to protect your quarterback in the NFL. Those guys are worth 20, $30 million per year. And you've just flat out got to take care of those guys. And option football makes it harder and harder to take care of those guys. So just if we're going to, you know, maintain some kind of economic model here, it's protecting your most valuable assets keeps you from running the RPO or various option football items as often as they do in college. The other are, are simply this in college football, offensive linemen are allowed one yard further down the field than they are in the NFL. So that gives it an advantage in college. It's more effective. They don't do as good a job calling it or legislating it, if you will, um, in college football. So that makes it hard too. Then in terms of just spread football in general, the hash marks make a big difference. You guys heard Michael Lombardi talk about this a while back. Uh, look, Pat Fitzgerald's trying to have some fun here, and he's talking to somebody in his press conference. It sounds like he was a former offensive lineman. I don't know if he was a teammate of Pat Fitzgerald's or not because he was having some fun with this offensive lineman. He was talking about how, you know, when you were playing, you would have tripped and fallen down or something like that. So I everybody stop taking this so seriously. Pat Fitzgerald's having a good time. In terms of whether your team should be running more RPOs, I say yes. Uh, I think it's like all forms of option football, despite their inherent risks, it is just a bear to defend. And I think you are going to see more of it. Just like with the zone read, it's not going to take the world by storm forever, but it will become a staple of teams. And you're going to see it. It's just not going to always be for these ridiculous averages that you get whenever you introduce something new in the NFL. Defenses adjust to it. Plus, The college players who see all this stuff are filtering up into the NFL and obviously the players, sometimes the players are better at it than the coaches. These old dinosaur coaches have a hard time adjusting to it more than the players who grew up this way. I personally like it. I mean, a lot of people my age and older saw a lot of veer option when they were in high school. So if you were a high school or college defensive end, you had to deal with the option and it's a pain in the butt. It's really, really hard. I don't know why it took him so long to figure out how to run it out of the, the shotgun because the danger of the old school veer option was that your quarterback is sitting right there running down the line towards the defensive end. And sometimes, sometimes you got to try to feather him and play both the quarterback and the pitch. But sometimes you say, all right, you know what, we're going to have a linebacker scrape over the top and we're just going to blast the hell out of the, the quarterback and try to make his kidneys bleed. And, Kidneys bleeding on quarterbacks is frowned upon in the NFL. They tend to not like it. The owners don't like it. The GMs don't like it. So everybody lay the hell off of Pat Fitzgerald. Salt of the earth fellow right there. And since we're on the topic of college football infiltrating its way up into the NFL, a lot of the innovations in football, all and this goes way back. This isn't something new. Come at the high school level because high school coaches, for a variety of reasons, sometimes have to be more innovative because they're dealing with such talent disparities between small schools and larger schools and whatnot. Um, Also, there's less risk sometimes in trying something new in high school because there aren't the athletes on defense that can take advantage of mental errors, uh, physical lapses, all that stuff. The more exotic you get, the more mistakes you tend to make. So in the NFL, when you try to get too exotic and do a bunch of different stuff, you tend to make mistakes. And then the defense pounces on those mistakes. So a lot of times, high school filters up to college, college refines a little bit, and then it filters its way up to the NFL. Uh, One interesting development, In Florida, Palatka, Florida, which is a place that I've actually been quite a few times when I was playing with the Jaguars, Uh, there was an assistant coach and a physical education teacher at Palatka High School who resigned in 2017. The Florida Department of Education conducted an investigation. Here are a few of the complaints against this coach, and I'm going to go through. There's four complaints here. I'm just going to read them off and see if I can defend him, or at least maybe give give. uh, Look, let's let's. Play devil's advocate here and figure out if this was truly deserved. This guy was forced into a resignation. Let's see. One, headbutted a 16-year-old male student. Um, let's first. I'd like to know if it was a football player or not. Uh, if it was just some guy walking down the hall, clearly not acceptable. So you shouldn't do that. If it was during a football practice and maybe he was getting heated and given some aggressive instruction, correcting a problem aggressively, as my old special teams coach, Frank, Frank Gant Sr. used to say, uh, maybe he got a little excited and it was an inadvertent headbutt or he was bobbing his head and he butted the head and the kid was wearing a helmet. Then the damage m- is more done to the coach than him. So item one, item two, told another player that he was not a good football player and that he should, oh, should commit suicide or words to that effect. I think if he specifically advised suicide, that's clearly stepping over the bounds just by a little bit or a tad or more. Um, maybe what if he said you should just go off yourself? I feel like there's still enough room in America that you should be able to speak colorfully about things like this. And, uh, it's look, is it reason for termination? Perhaps. Um, but you cut him a little break. He was speaking colorfully. He was trying to provide color and, and variation in the language. Speaking metaphors. He's exaggerating, using hyperbole. Item number three, plugged up one nostril, forced mucus to be released from his other nostril. I think you could just say farmer snot there. That's what we used to call it, the old farmer snot. I used to be a big proponent of the farmer snot, especially when you're, uh, when you're out with a bush hog in the summer and you're clearing a field, you got like 40 acres and you're you're using that bush hog and uh, you, you, your allergies kick up. You got to do the old farmer snot quite a bit. So he farmer snotted, oh, on another 15 year old male student. Again, uh, if I were this dude, I'd be saying this was inadvertent, unintentional, uh, just innocent bystander. Item number four, stood on a toilet seat and peeped over the bathroom stall at a 16 year old male student and watched that student well, he used the facilities. I think we're done here.
3: I wasn't during the game thinking that I was playing terrible. It was just, you know, just I feel like after all, if I, you know, put the whole game together, I feel like I could have did more and uh, could have capitalized, hit some more receivers, and you know, just been on the same page with the offense. But, uh, you know, like I said, you know, as I go, the offense go. And, um, you know, my energy and my, my level of play wasn't up to part and you know, We lost by
1: seven. Uh, Michael Lombardi, his book, uh, Gridiron Genius, a master's class in winning championships and building dynasties in the NFL. Uh, Longtime GM and personnel man, Michael Lombardi. Michael, are you surprised at the way Deshaun Watson looked in the opener?
3: Yeah, pretty much so. But he looked like that against Cincinnati in the opening game when he played last year. It didn't seem like he had any accuracy or control of the football, which was disappointing. Uh I thought the Patriots did a really good job of controlling him in the pocket, not letting him have those lanes. And then when he did get out, the accuracy down the field wasn't there. As Deshaun said after the game, I mean, the game was there for the taking, and he just didn't play well. I don't think the receivers played well. I think not having Will, Hot, Will Fuller really hurt them but uh you know i think that was opening day the rust was clearly on the on the texans offense passing game
1: you know you had talked last week uh about Bill Belichick and how he uses the first quarter as a way to figure out how the game was going. And this was almost a textbook example of that where in the first quarter Brady Brady was just dinking and dunking looked didn't look particularly great other than on that first quick turnaround where they were able to eviscerate them but it, but other than that they just they neutralized JJ Watt, they doubled Clowney, even though they realized that they didn't have to and they just kind of figured out a way to isolate their spots and it, I I guess the question is why can't more teams do that?
3: <laughs> you know it's funny. I, I, I'm friends with a lot of guys from the NBA, and we, we talk. The NBA, NBA coaches talk about the overall game way more than football coaches do. There's just not a sense of how to play the game. What style do we have to play? Like, let me give you an example. Like Sean Payton's defense last year was really good, right? Everybody recognizes that. But Sean Payton's defense, anytime it had to play more than 30 minutes last year, was terrible. Okay, even though they had two players, you know, they're all the run around. So. When you play, if you're the Saints and you're this good as a football team, you got to play – got to control the ball for 34 minutes and let your defense play 26. That's how the Eagles won. But sometimes I think we get into these situations where we're going to do our thing and they're going to do their thing, and there's a style and substance that has to be played in games for you to be successful. And I don't see it happening all the time in the NFL. It's because we are in an age of – of subcontractors. Too many guys are just calling plays and they're not managing the whole game. They're just running their their side of the ball.
1: Do the Patriots script out their first 15 plays as extensively as other teams do? You know, that's the biggest myth of football. It's
3: the greatest thing that's run around. It's like this scripts. Oh, my God, where's the scripts? What's our first 15? And I wrote about this in the book. Bill Walsh's first 15 was designed to score. Not to get feel and, oh, I want to get everybody touches, to get everybody involved. No. The whole concept of the script was to score. We're going to play from in front. The Eagles last year played from in front. The Patriots played from in front. That's the Patriots script. How are we going to score? Now, they didn't do it. They went. I think they went a four and out the first time, which was probably one of the reasons why they were pissed off. But the idea of a script is to score early. We want to get the ball even especially since we didn't kick off, we kicked off, we get we held them, we're going to get the ball back, or if we have to start the game off with, uh, with the ball, we want to score. That's what the script is for, and that's how it's most effective. Yes, they script, but their interest is in scoring right away.
2: Michael, if you had hosted our show on Monday morning, how critical would you have been of Bill O'Brien not using a timeout after the grand Catch to allow the people in New York a chance to buzz down and review that play?
3: Well, I really don't fault that. I mean, like, Bill's probably sitting there thinking, I can't challenge it because it's in the two-minute, right? It's got to come from those guys, you know? And so I'm sure he's waiting for it, you know, and he's got, like, you know, and I wanted to really be critical of Billy at, you know, he's got first and ten at the midfield at the 50-yard line with two minutes to go. And I'm watching the game, and I'm saying to myself, Bill, you you know now, you can't give the Patriots the ball back in this situation. You can't do this, right? You can't do this. And they false start. And then they run a control pass and then they have to give the ball back. So I wanna fault I wanted to fault him early but I couldn't there and I'm not sure I can either because like I think that's really bad by the league office. I think that guy should have buzzed down immediately when there was a question and let him review it. I thought that was really bad. And Bill's instincts are look, we're in the two minute, they gotta make the call, not me.
2: How concerned should the Texans be with the fact that there were a lot of things? Out for them on the table against New England, they weren't able to take advantage of any of those things. Because honestly, we take a look back at the, both the O'Brien era and just mainly Houston Texans football. Whenever they've played big games against big time teams, they have failed in those opportunities that have been on their plate.
3: Yeah, and I think this. I mean, one of the things I, I regret not talking about last week on the show was look, bad offensive lines don't travel well. And that's been my rule in the NFL. Bad lines don't travel well. Minnesota's got a bad offensive line because of injuries. They're going into Green Bay. Typically, they, you don't travel well. Houston's offensive line was not very good. They lose, they lose the left tackle early in the game. Bad lines don't travel well. And that's always been a problem. They're going to have to fix that. And I think that's part of the issue when they play against better teams is that offensive line shows up as not having enough talent base to really sustain it. Not that the Patriots are great at, on their defensive front, but they're good enough and they're smart enough on how they rush. So I think that's going to be the challenge for for the Texans this year. Is can they play effectively with their offensive line when they go on the road?
1: What's that like for GMs right now in the league? Because it seems like offensive linemen are – Like, good offensive linemen are as scarce as they've ever been. In this last offseason, the Texans went after Nate Solder. They didn't get him. And then after that, the drop-off is so immense. Are are GMs just kind of reluctantly figuring, all right, we're going to have to build through the draft and coaching because you can't go out and just pluck off good offensive tackles anymore?
3: I think you have to have a two-year plan for your offensive line. Look, I think the number one job for me as a general manager was in August was who was my backup offensive line next preseason i got to have ten linemen, and i got to work on that because I can't put five rookie free agents out there in the first quarter of a preseason game and expect to evaluate any other player on the team. It just won't work. So the number one objective for me as a general manager was, who's my backup line in August? I need to have proven guys that I can work with all through the year, that we can practice and develop, and if they're not going to get any better, got to cut them, find somebody else. That's the challenge because we don't have the offseason that we used to have. When I was in Cleveland with Belichick, we were able to develop offensive linemen. We developed Orlando Brown. We beat worldwide wrestling for him for $100. We found Wally Williams at Florida A&M. We turned Bob Dahl, a, 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 a Houston Oil, a third round pick as a defensive lineman into an offensive lineman. You know, so we did those things because we had an off-season to really spend time and work with. And Kirk Ferenz, the great Iowa coach, was our line coach. So we made it work. But you got to be really reticent on this. You got to work hard. You got to be willing and the line coach, to me, I think it's one of the most underpaid positions in pro football. You get a good line coach; he's worth three to four million dollars a year because if he finds just two starters that are from the fourth round on, that's worth his weight in gold.
1: Michael, that's my. I think your business plan needs to be this: go over to Eastern Europe and start an O-line academy. Yeah. Get some of these big, uh, these big strength athletes. Then go up to Finland too and get some of these big hosses that that have been doing power clean since they're 12 years old and turn them into offensive linemen. Well,
3: that's what we tried to do in Cleveland. We always looked for who was the state chop champion? Who was the state discus thrower champion? You know, and then we found those guys. We wanted, we, I signed Rick Lyle, who ended up playing 10 years as a defensive lineman in the NFL. It's a free agent from Missouri. I wanted to flip him around and make him an offensive lineman, but he ended up being good enough on the defensive line that he ended up playing in the league for 10 years because he was the state discus champion in Missouri. I, I, you got to look for traits in linemen. What can they do? And then you got, like, we drafted Shaq Mason. In the thir- fourth round in 2016, nobody had – Chuck Mason wasn't even invited to the combine. This is a kid. He, ha- he was in Georgia Tech's offense. He had no bad habits as an offensive lineman because he never pass protected in college, so he was horrible at it. He went to the senior bowl. People wrote him off. We drafted him in the fourth round and turned him into a really good player because, he, again, he had no bad habits. We could distill it. We could put into him what we needed to. It takes work. It takes planning, and it takes patience. And when you're always thinking about the next week's game, we got to get a lineman ready, you're too late. you got to be a year ahead of the curve. You can't be a year behind.
2: Mike, let me throw a couple of uh, young quarterbacks at you. Level of concern on these three guys. Dak Prescott, Marcus Mariota, who we'll see on Sunday here, and then Derek Carr as well.
3: Well, look, I, I think Dak Prescott's a victim of the situation in Dallas. I mean, look, they got Jake Elliott. One of the best running backs in football. They averaged three. They were the 30, 31st ranked team on first down last last week in the league. They averaged three yards a carry. The guy could be one of the most dynamic players in the passing game. He had four targets, three catches for 17 yards with a long of 11. I think the system of offense really hinders what Dak Prescott can do. If you look at him in 16 on third down only, he was really good. The last two years on third down, they haven't changed what they do offensively. He hasn't been as effective. I think the skill in Dallas is a problem. I think Mariota has really become an overrated player. When you watch Mariota play and he extends the ball down the field and he has to throw it down the field, it's not the same guy. He loses his accuracy. He loses his ability to, to, to throw it with precision. I, I just think he's not been able to stay durable. He's not, been, he's not been accurate with the football when he's had a chance, and I think it's been a problem. I mean, look, he's only completed 39 passes over 20 yards in his entire career. He's got 10 picks of those 39, of his 36 happen when the ball travels 20 yards. So he's not accurate down the field, and I think that's the big issue with him. And then, you know, to me, I'm still waiting on Derek Carr. I think Derek Carr has trouble when you put pressure on him. I think when he feels the heat, he gets rid of the ball too early and he takes the check down too willingly. He did it at Fresno State. I think John's got a challenge to get him to hold in that pocket because, look, if they're going to put their best corner, a keep to leave, on – Jared Cook, then we got to win with Amari Cooper. we got to win with Jordy Nelson on the outside. And that means you got to hold the ball just a split second longer.
2: Outside of his running ability as a passer, what does what Mariota do well?
3: That's a great question. I think you have to look at it. Look, on third down, he's only a 57% completion passer in his entire NFL career. You know, and he doesn't throw the ball down the field. That's the biggest concern. I mean, he doesn't average, you know, he doesn't make any plays. Now, but the Texans offense isn't very good on first down. And you would think it would be better, but it wasn't. I mean, last year, you realize you're going – last year, Tom Savage threw for 331 yards against this Titans team. Mm. Last year, you know, so I think the Titans are really overrated. I don't think their talent base is as good as people suspect they are. I think when you look at them, they're not. They're skilled players. They lose Delaney Walker. I think it's a problem. But going back to Mariota, I think he's not been able to make explosive plays, and people have blamed it on the offense. But then when you really break them down, third down he doesn't make plays, first down he doesn't make plays. What do you have?
1: He's Michael Lombardi. His book, "Gridiron Genius: A Master's Class in Winning Championships and Building Dynasties in the NFL," is out now. I will be reading it this weekend with three different colored highlighters. I'll have questions for you uh, uh, next week. I and love it. Are you going on a book tour, Michael? Are you Doug Peterson? I'm actually in
3: Maryland today. Yeah, I'm in. I'm in. <laughs> I'm in Maryland today. I got. I got to speak here today, and then I'm going back to Los Angeles. I got a couple things next week, so I'm really humbled by it. The, the book uh, has gotten some good rec- re- representation, so it's exciting. I mean, I never thought I would actually. Write a book. I think my mother still can't believe we got to rest her soul.
1: Oh, and uh, what about your TED Talk? Did you do your TED Talk already? I
3: did my TED Talk. That was the scariest moment of my life. I got to tell you, <laughs> TED Talks you, uh, you have to you have to be like Hamlet, to be or not to be. You have to memorize the damn thing, and yeah. it was hard. You know, I'm used to being. I'm used to giving talks, but I always have slides and I can do my thing, you know. And I go from one thing to the next, and I don't have to. This was hard. I mean, I was sweating bullets, but it was really, the, really a rewarding thing. And the TED Talk will be out in six weeks. It was about why leadership has killed culture in society today. And when you look at it, if hmm. you go back to 1955, the S and P top 500 companies only fit, only 60 remain today. And you'd say, well. You know that's because technology and innovation. No, they're predicting of the 500 today, 250 will be gone in 10 years. What's happened in our society is our leadership isn't creating the right culture. It happens in the NFL. It happens in business.
1: Oh, really? Really cool and interesting stuff. Pick up his book, "Great Iron Genius." Michael, we'll see you next week. Thanks, man. Thanks, guys.
3: Michael Lombardi via the
2: uh, Buyers Barricades Hotline. Again, he is also uh, a writer for the Athletic and the Ringer as well. I thought he had excellent stuff on the offensive line. And uh, sometimes what worries you about the Texans is the simple thing is. In football, can you block? And if you can't block, it's hard to beat good football teams, as we found out on Sunday. The
1: Texans are heading on to their fourth version of their two-year plan at offensive line. Yeah, it's we a, gotta. Ever since, uh, we need ever to since investigate. Chris Myers this Myers and Wade Smith and everybody else has been gone. <laughs> there, it's been a, a series of two years plan, two well, year plans. We'll-
0: this episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what?